Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the CU Insight Experience. My name is Randy Smith. I am one of the co-founders and the publisher of CUinsight.com, and it is my job on the show to have conversations with the best and the brightest of the credit union community to pick their brains and hopefully find a few nuggets we can all learn from. My guest today is actually from outside the credit union space. I was at PSCU member forum a, a few weeks back and, and I had the opportunity to snag one of the keynotes for, uh, to sit down and do this interview for, you know, put together a quick podcast here. So my guest today, a futurist, Mr. Mike Walsh. Mike is the CEO of Tomorrow. He is a global consultant that helps design companies for the 21st century. He advises leaders on how to thrive in the current era of disruptive technological change crazy. It's a true global nomad. He travels over 300 days a year worldwide. He's researching trends. He's presenting on the future of business. He's the author of three books. His latest book that just came out about a month ago now, The Algorithmic Leader, How to Be Smart When Machines Are Smarter Than You. We will link to all three below in the show notes. He also has a podcast, which I've been listening to, and I'm now a subscriber. Between Worlds, each week he interviews provocative thinkers and innovators and troublemakers, and I will tell you, it's a lot of fun. He's had some really cool guests. In this episode... Although we were short on time, we packed a lot into it. We discussed moving from the digital revolution to the algorithmic revolution and the power of data in that move and how credit unions really can capitalize on this. He mentioned how being able to deliver a digital experience to our members will no longer be a competitive advantage over the next few years. It's just going to be table stakes. It's what you do around that experience for the member. That's the real secret sauce. He talked about how data can help credit unions to better proactively manage members' life decisions. And we also talked about how with all the data out there, the important part is asking the right question that you want to get from the data and then letting the data do the work. Uh, in the life hacks portion and the leadership portion, we, we talked about quite a few different hacks with him, uh, obviously traveling so much. He, he had some ideas on how to work remotely, also how to stay motivated over time and, and gave us some tips on how he keeps up on the world and how he keeps up on all this change that is happening. Like I said, I really, I enjoyed this conversation. I would love to get more time with Mike. I, I left with more questions than I started with. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Mr. Mike Walsh. Enjoy. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast. I was really excited about this. I know. It's 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 great. Uh, so we're sitting here. We're at PSCU Member Forum in Austin. You just gave your keynote. There were so many questions that, to me, came from it after watching it. One of the big things was, whether it's your first book, your second book, you have a third book that's coming out right now. It's The uh, Algorithmic Leader. The Algorithmic out. Leader. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So I, I look forward to reading that. But all the way through, you've talked about disruptive change. And as a futurist, I will throw two questions out there for you first. What's the elevator pitch? What is a futurist first? And when you're talking disruptive change across all industries, is there something that you see happening and after being around credit unions for a while that you just think that they need to wrap their head around quickly? In a way, we're all futurists in that it's impossible to not only do our jobs, but even survive 
on this planet without having some kind of mental model about what's going to happen next. Even in conversation, you're anticipating someone's response. The real job of a futurist isn't really prediction. And I know that's controversial because in some ways, the future is obvious now in that we, we kind of know what's coming. Things are announced months, years, even decades before they actually arrive. So we, we kind of have a sense of the technologies, the infrastructure, the the landscape of the world that's coming. What we don't know are two things. First of all, the broader impacts of those technologies. And the second, how to navigate through the choices of the present to get to the future we want to get to. And and that's really the job of a futurist. It's less of a psychic and more of a, I think, a guidance counselor. <laughs> okay, okay, that's that's an interesting way to put that. Is there? I mean, you work with companies around the world. Is there? You know, this was a question that I kept thinking to myself: Is our industry tends to be a little bit older, a little more traditional? There's a lot of that. We've always done it this way. So, is there something that you have where you can you you help people that light bulb go on? Where it's like we need to change. We need the transformation. I think we have to reset our expectations about what new versus old means. Uh, I, there's been a big trend. And uh, in some ways, it's it's part of the whole mythology of the Silicon Valley startup and the you know strike rich quick idea that a group of outlaws can go there and shake up an industry and make billions of dollars. And what's been really fascinating, because if you think about it, the the digital revolution has been kind of running for almost 20 years now, is that there's a cycle to this, that even very small, scrappy companies at some point need scale, infrastructure, HR, legal, finance, accounting departments. They they get silos. They get entropy. They have all the problems that, let's say, traditional old companies have. So the question is not really how do old companies do something new, because any company that's been around for more than 20 years has had to go through a period of transformation. Credit unions in particular have transformed dramatically over their long history. We forget that sometimes. But one advantage that today big established companies have over the new entrants is data. And data is absolutely going to fuel the next revolution. So we've been through a digital revolution. The revolution that's coming is an algorithmic one where AI platforms, learning algorithms, massive systems are collecting data and using that to personalize experiences and products. And new entrants are going to really struggle to get the kind of critical mass that existing players in the credit union and more broadly in the financial services industry have already established, but in many cases are yet to fully capitalize on. It's interesting. When I was listening to your podcast on the plane, and it's the podcast name is uh, Between Worlds, and I'm a subscriber now. I think it was a few episodes back, you had a woman on who wrote a book, and you guys were talking about Sears and yeah, the yeah. transformation of like Sears to Walmart to what Amazon's doing. And Well, Sears, Sears was the Amazon of its time. I, I thought that was such an amazing discussion that you two had, and it reminded me of, again, credit unions, financial services in general, being a more traditional space, but to what you're talking about with data, that there's an opportunity there. Yeah. Um, well, credit unions were a disruptor in their space too. They were a radical idea and they remain a radical idea. And uh, we we sometimes tell ourselves the wrong stories about innovation. And I think that's what we have to address is that innovation is really open to anyone. It's open to any industry, to any company. It's something that isn't a once-off. It has to be a daily part of the DNA of your culture. Is there something that Yesterday, watching your keynote, you, you had people on the edge. They were engaged. Is there something that 
let's say you're the more progressive person in the credit union or a financial institution in general, and you're trying to make that change and you're maybe you need to get senior management or you need to get the board to buy <laughs> in. Is there do you have any hacks on how, how to move that conversation forward? The only way to really get people who are set in their ways to change their mindset profoundly is to show them the facts. And that's the great thing, I think, about the digital transformation potential we have now is that it's fairly objective. You know, if there is a smarter way of doing things, is there a better way of designing a process? If there's a better way of engaging a customer or a member, you can actually model that out and then show its direct impact on the systems, on cycle time, all the information's there. The, the art is actually building a narrative around it, visualizing it in, in, in an interesting way, because we're still analog in the way we process information. So you need someone who's part data scientist and part fireside storyteller, you know, to really bring it to life. But but data is absolutely the key. You, it's funny. I've, I've thought that you know, when we think back, technology was kind of always siloed off in the IT department. And then marketing came in and said, wait, we need this. Uh, you know, so much of the digital transformation was on the storytelling. So. Yeah, but, but it's in, the point you raise is really interesting because in a way, we're all consumers of IT now. And it's not, even the role of IT is changing from being the guardians and the sort of the, the protectors of technology in the organization to being really a a platform that facilitates the consumption and usage by, you know, right right to the edge of the business. So I've said for the past few years that I thought technology can be the great equalizer for smaller institutions like credit unions because it's not like you have to build everything. We, no. we, we outsource so much. Is that and feel free to call me out. This is what you do. Is that idea like base is solid or is it? Am no, it I completely is. Out but it's field? a <laughs> it's a double edged sword uh, because. Technology in many ways is absolutely being commoditized and you can subscribe to it and it's becoming cheaper. We all essentially end up with the same systems, which means the competitive advantage is no longer the technology. Being able to deliver a digital experience for a member is not something that gives you a competitive advantage in the next few years. It's just the it's just table stakes. It's what everyone expects. So the secret source is what you do in and around the technology, the way that you find innovative ways to accelerate the velocity of the decisions you can make internally, the way you come up with new and creative ways to engage your member base, how you bring an anthropological perspective to your experience design. This is where the competition is moving to. Technology is just the platform, the enabler. It isn't the trump card. There was a question that when I was talking to my team that we kept thinking about, and it was after reading your bio, in all honesty, and you being global. A, a few weeks back, I had a gentleman from Visa on, and one of the things that I feel like I've noticed in my travels is that on certain technologies, it seems like the rest of the world is a little ahead of the U.S. in adoption. Yeah. Is that true? Is that when you're working with companies around the world, do you see that? Absolutely. And you have to remember as well where technologies come from, not just the technology, but the practice of using. Uh, I mean, the iPhone wasn't really invented in, in America, in that Steve Jobs went to Japan, and he saw how the Japanese and the Koreans were using uh, really smartphone technology, you know, in the early 2000s, the whole mobile content ecosystem, the mobile payment system. And so these things are just sort of trickling in now into the United States. And even when you look at mobile payment, I mean, a tiny fraction of people really use things like Apple Pay, 
when you consider that in China, literally hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people use their phone to pay for things. And on on services like Weixin or WeChat, it's an entire mobile platform or application in which you can do everything from order noodles to booking a massage to buying life insurance to buying travel products to a trench coat from Burberry. I mean, it's an operating system for daily life. And we're yet to see that level of integration in the States. I remember even a couple of years ago when I was in Southeast Asia and in Indonesia, there, there was this the app that was Uber on steroids, right? Like anything oh, yeah. you needed, whether it was a massage like you mentioned or if it was housekeeping services or a car. I mean, it was groceries. Everything was right there. And, and, and that's still just version one yep. because yeah. the advantage that a lot of these Asian countries have is that they're now by integrating so many services onto that single platform, they're collecting a massive amount of data on what people want, when they want it, and in what combination. So the next phase is orchestrating those services ahead of people's requests. So these systems will literally just roll out a red carpet for you with your life and make things run without you having to even explicitly uh, articulate them. So is that some place to kind of bring it full circle back to financial services? Is that the same, let's call it service deliverable that we are all going to expect from our Absolutely. those relationships. As and well. uh, you know, it's a, it's a great point because I mean, already financial services works on a, a kind of a life event model. There are certain key events in people's lives, and you know, it's it's kind of a blunt instrument. You know, when someone is a child, when they you know need to move house, uh, when they get married, certain key life events drive financial decisions. Whether it's buying a car or getting a mortgage or getting a loan. So we need to kind of go to the next level on that with data and to be able to not only react to a specific life event, but to help guide people on the second and third order implications of their decisions. And it's like, okay, uh, you know, we've 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 noticed you've got a new child. You know, you might want to start thinking about education. If you make this in these kind of allocations now, it could fund education uh, at these schools. Uh, but if you move into this area, uh, you will be in this catchment zone. So, so we kind of need to more proactively help people manage their life decisions. That just brought up another question. So often, what I hear from people in the credit union industry is they're. And, and even some of the companies that are working in this space now is the idea that they're capturing all the data, but then what to do with it seems to be where the, like you're talking about that next logical step. And that seems to be where the struggle is for a, I guess, smaller, if you don't have the data scientists on staff and you don't have, you know, like how do you see, I guess, companies actually taking all this just ridiculous amounts of data and yeah. making it actionable? There's sort of many responses to that. Uh, I mean, at, at a high level, the rise of um, machine learning and deep learning allows you to task algorithms with studying the data and coming up with conclusions without necessarily someone specifically hunting through all of it. So I don't think we will need as many data scientists in the future in that we will have more automated systems that parse this data. But just having lots of data doesn't help as well because sometimes – you know, what form is that data? How is it collected? For what purpose? Uh, is it in like some obscure COBOL system that no one even knows how to program or understand anymore? So it's often about being strategic about, okay, you know, we have a particular question in mind. How do we now build an application or a system that will harvest a particular kind of data that will help us answer that question? And then how do we weaponize that to 
be more effective at serving our members. So that's sort of the thought process that we need to, you know, move into as opposed to there's a giant, you know, data barn out there with a whole bunch of junk and we've got no idea how to sort it out. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think that's been the part that, at least in the conversations I've heard and had around our industry that uh, that people are working through right now. So I'd like to, I want to be respectful of your time. I'd like to switch to the leaderships and life hacks portion of the, yeah, the yeah. show and ask a few questions here. One thing I always love to ask people is how they got their start into where the career is. I mean, you know, again, going through your bio, seeing you speak yesterday, you know, CEO of a company, you're see you tomorrow. So you're working with, I mean, companies all around the world to become 21st century companies, podcaster, keynote speaker, author. We talked about the books and we'll link to all of those. What brought you here? <laughs> I'm a failed lawyer. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I trained to be a lawyer and uh, I actually studied accounting and law uh, when I was young. But you know, when I, by the time I finished and I was meant to get a, a sign to get a job in a big management consulting firm and I just felt it wasn't for me, especially because around that time was really the internet was really swinging into high gear. It was the late 90s, companies were going public, and it just felt like a revolution that if you weren't part of it, you were just going to be on the sidelines. So I kind of, you know, to everyone in my family's despair, walked away from a traditional career and, and started an internet company. And I really haven't had a normal job since. I, I absolutely love that. I, yeah. And I know, like, you live quite the nomadic life as well, which I've tried to structure mine. I, a question that I had for you that I think in just the, I don't want to just say the gig economy, but this idea that we aren't centralized as much anymore. It really is a global economy in my mind. A few years back, we went 100% location independent. My whole team works that way. And it was after listening to a podcast of all things with the founder of WordPress and never had an office, right? Like, so it was that idea. And I was like, why do we have an office? This doesn't make sense. And I wanted to travel. So do you have any tips for, I mean, as more and more people work remote, you mentioned yesterday, you're on the road 300 days a year. So you have to be productive while you're out there or, you know, not sitting in a traditional office. Any tips? hacks for people that are maybe moving into that space? It's not easy. Actually, being on the move doesn't make it easier. It, it actually just is another further challenge to, to being productive. So uh, you just, I think, have to design very good personal systems. You know, you have to leverage automation yourself. Uh, you have to be ultra efficient in how you do things and, and keep track of things. You know, definitely my sort of high level view is, is that I need to be able to lose any piece of hardware and to be able to just immediately resume what I'm doing by picking up another piece of hardware. So the cloud becomes very important in, in how you do stuff. So, But a lot of it's psychological. You have to develop a sense of personal resiliency uh, <laughs> aside from ability to sleep at any time and anywhere. Any place you can. I agree with that as well. Is there – gosh, what's the best way to put this? Is there – it's kind of more on a leadership or a management side. How – do you manage teams? Like, I mean, you have, I'm sure, people that you're working with to make your organization run. I, uh, <laughs> uh, this is a bit controversial, but I mean, many years ago, I gave myself three rules. Essentially, number one, don't have a boss because I just, I couldn't bear the thought of that anymore. Number two, uh, don't have any staff because I remember when I was younger and I had a team and they were wonderful, but I just, I spent most of the time managing their personal problems rather than doing the things I liked. So from that point on, I decided, you know, you need to work with people, obviously. It's always better to work on a contract basis with people where, you know, they're being paid for the work that they do specifically and specific outcomes. And so you have a whole network of relationships, a whole personal ecosystem to, you know, to do what you do. And so I outsource sales, I outsource accounting. I focus on 
as best as possible just doing what I can do best. But I make sure I own that. But probably the third most controversial personal rule was don't have any clients. Okay, right. And and what I mean by that is if you have a client that, especially if you're staying small and lean, that really becomes a job, then you've actually just invalidated all your other rules. Uh, and, And so you need to find a way of dealing with people that doesn't become a job for you. Uh, you know, whether it's reducing or setting expectations around the size of the engagement, you know, being very clear about what you're delivering, finding a way to scale it up so you don't actually need to deliver it yourself. You want customers, not clients. That's very interesting to me. That's what I'm going to think a lot more on, actually. So is there a piece of advice? I mean, you, you just talked about those three kind of rules that you live by. Was Is there a piece of advice throughout your career that you've just find yourself going back to over and over again? Uh, look, the the big thing, and it's it's a daily struggle, is that you've got to once you've liberated yourself from the immediate financial worries of surviving, you know, which actually takes years. Absolutely, um, it it took me almost ten years, I think, to get the point where I wasn't actually worried that I'd have to go back and find a job. Then you have to. There's a daily struggle of staying passionate about what you do and and really just doing it because that is your absolute focus and love. And if, if if that gets difficult at times, it's either because you're off course or you've, you need to re-engage with what you do. But the, the only way to really be successful, and, and let's face it, I mean, if, you're not, if you don't have a normal career like an accountant or you're a sort of a, a mid-level manager in a big organization, you can't be ordinary. You have to be extraordinary in order to be noticed or, you know, because it's a winner-takes-all game. You're either the one that everyone wants to hire or no one's heard of you. So the only way to bring authenticity to that is to completely commit and burn the boats and really, you know, you can't not be half-hearted about it. I love that. Is there, has that inspiration changed? I mean, or how do you, you just talked about the inspiration, like sometimes, has that inspiration changed since you started where you're like, I'm not working for somebody else anymore? The ebbs and flows of that inspiration, once you had food on the table once you knew that you weren't going to have oh, yeah. to you know, get no, a real job. Well, you know, like, like you said, airports. initially the inspiration was just not having a job right. <laughs> and, and traveling. But then as, as I got older and I, be, I got deeper into it it, it, it changes. It changes on a daily basis. You know, I have to find a new reason to do what I do every day. And and, and that can be hard when, when you're on the road. But, you know, I'm excited. I, I mean, producing books is a, is a big part of it. It, it. You know, the other day I got an email from someone in Mexico and they'd read my new book, The Algorithmic Leader. And uh, in it, I, I talk about the differences and the way we've, you know, changed from idolizing companies like GE and Jack Welch. And he'd actually had an experience working at GE. And, and his personal experience really tallied up with a lot of the ideas in my book. And, you know, that's where you get an incredible amount of fulfillment when you know that you're really engaging with someone's personal aspirations, with the, the challenges that they have. It's, it's far more rewarding than, than money. We will link to the book. I, like I said, I ordered it once I knew you were going to be on the podcast, so I, I, I look forward to reading it. It was on Amazon. So just to get you uh, going, because I know you're busy right here, I have a few rapid-fire questions I'd love to ask, right. so I'd love okay. to throw them out there to, to you as all, uh, well. Do you remember the first time you got into memorable trouble? <laughs> oh, gosh, I do, and I'm, I'm absolutely not going to share the story with you. <laughs> <laughs> that is all right. Again, it's it's one of these questions that, I, I, like I said, I really do love to ask everybody, and I feel like with the, the scope of all the people that you talk to, is there – I'm a huge reader. I love to read. I'm obviously going to order your books. Is there – like all the different things that you and I have talked about, are there books or are there – 
you know, blogs or things that you follow that or you, that you think everybody should today? Uh, you know, I, I read a lot of blogs. I, I, I use Feedly, you know, to keep track of them all by subject. There's some amazing, you know, newsletters now coming out on things like AI. You know, the one thing I read every day, though, uh, is the Financial Times. Okay. It is the most brilliant news magazine. They've really made the jump into the digital world, which means that you have to pay. Um, but it's worth it. The, the coverage is brilliant. And so, yeah, if I wanted to give you some advice about just if you're going to read one thing every day, it would be that. The, the Financial Times. Is there something that you have a routine that you do every day while you're traveling? Anything that if you just don't, your day feels off? Breakfast for me is, is, is my happiest moment. <laughs> Good coffee, avocado and some eggs, uh, you know, reading the newspapers on my iPad, that to me is a good morning. That's that's the good start to the day. The random question, what's the best album of all time? The one you can listen oh, to from front to God. back. Oh, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I like a bunch of stuff. I really like jazz. I'm a secret audiophile. So I, I listen to really large studio quality DSD files. You know, for, for those of you who don't know, it's like, a DSD is to an MP3 what an IMAX movie theater uh, is to watching a YouTube video on a 2007 iPhone. So it's uh, so I really like Bill Evans. Uh, there's some amazing uh, records from him. There's an amazing record from Chick Corea called Trilogy, which is a, a live recording of them playing in Spain. I really love opera as well, so I like listening to Tosca. Okay, so we'll link to those as well. As you've gotten older, what's become more important? Not flying. Not flying. That's that's so hard to believe. But you know, uh, every year for a couple of months, I go back to Australia. I've got a place on the beach in Bondi. I, I you know, I exercise. I, I swim in the ocean. I see my family. Paradise. And you don't get on an airplane for yeah. a few months. Uh, I love it. Last question. I again greatly appreciate you for taking the time out. I know you're busy. You're you know here at this event. So, do you have any final thoughts or asks that? you'd like to get out to our listeners? Look, I, I would definitely love you to read my book. I've put really a lot of my experiences, my travels, the, the people I've met over the last five years. So it's, it, it's been a real distillation of that. So uh, please check that out. You can follow me on Twitter as well at uh, Mike Walsh and on Instagram. You know, I'm, I've been told I need to talk to millennials more often. So, so, <laughs> so you're on Instagram. I've started that too, up, yeah. but there are no, there are no makeup tutorials. So it, you'll be quite safe. That, that is awesome. If, is Twitter the best way if people have additional questions to get a hold of you? Yeah. Uh, Twitter or Instagram. Okay. We will send them there. The, the last thing I would throw out is if, like I said, three, four episodes in, I'm loving your podcast. If someone's taking a look at it for the first time, do you have a favorite episode or should they just listen to the last one? <laughs> you know, I've, I've interviewed everyone from uh, movie directors to artists to crazy scientists so really just look at this look at the list of episodes and see what jumps out of you that is awesome well th again thank you very much mike for being on the show great. i greatly appreciate it no problems have a great day 